morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, serving as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. With me this morning, my collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we want to wish you all Hey, happy 4th of July. Well, I know it's four days from now, but nonetheless, it is the significant birthday of our constitutional republic. Uh, and uh, the, the fascinating history around that we will only just briefly touch on. But this morning, we're going to be talking about the ideas that really were behind the creation of the Declaration of Independence. Ideas about a social contract of we the people deciding how we're going to form a government. A government that's going to serve us, not we the people are, exist to serve the government, which, by the way, is the philosophy of, of most, uh, most governments world over. The whole idea of that uh, government is the government is there to be served by the people. The people actually exist. The only reason the people are born into this world is to serve the, well, the monarch, the king, the dictator, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the people are there to serve the government and not according to our founders, not according to their philosophy of government. It's the exact opposite. We, the people, in compact together, that is by an agreement, a legal agreement, a binding agreement, we formed a government. First, we formed the state governments, the states to which we are citizens, and then the states together in, in representing their people, the states came together and they formed the federal government uh, by ratifying the Constitution of the United States. But that's a very different theory than what seems to be in operation today. We're going to talk about a, a, an illustration of that with Hunter Biden and what happened with a little, what, a, you know, a little tap on the shoulder. Oh, they're there now. You're fine. We're not going to send you to jail. There's not, you know, we're not going to do anything to you that you well deserve for having uh, grossly violated the law. We're just going to let you get along with your life and your multi-millions of bribes that you've taken from, oh, China and Ukraine and on and on the list goes of the Biden crime family. But we're going to talk about that as an illustration of how we have fallen away from that vision of our founders, that vision that is clearly declared in the Declaration of Independence, because uh, what our government is doing today, uh, I guess you might even not call it our government because it's been taken over by a bunch of Cretans, but that government that exists today in Washington, D.C., as well as in our state capitals, appears to exist for its own self-interest, for its own aggrandizement, for its own power, for its own wealth, and has nothing to do in anything it does with defending and protecting the God-given rights of we the people, which is exactly what our Declaration of Independence declared the purpose of civil government is. Let's just do a little brief reminder here of the essential philosophy that's declared in the Declaration of Independence. It is this, there is a creator God. Our founders believed in creation, not evolution. There is a creator God. By the way, they believe that's the God of the Bible. They clearly declared it's not Allah. It's not Buddha or somebody else. You know, it's the God of the Bible. There is a creator God, and he is the one who gives us our rights. They are God-given rights. They don't come from the government. The government is not the author of our rights. In fact, the government documents like the Constitution are not the source of our rights. The source of our rights is God himself, our creator. And we have those rights because we were created in the image of God, which is what 
both the Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two clearly declare because we are created in the image of God, that is where our rights come from. And therefore, to understand those rights, we have to have that worldview, that biblical worldview of law and biblical worldview of uh, government. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we're going to talk about the social contract theory that underlies really the foundation of our constitutional republic. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning on uh, that whole foundation? In past sessions, we have mentioned that the Constitution of 1787 and the Articles of Confederation before it were social contracts. In this session, we'll investigate the history of social contracts and how they are supposed to operate. Then we'll explore a federation as a social contract, the elimination of seventeenth of the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, direct election of the United States Senators, which violates the federation principle. Finally, the session will describe a Supreme Court of the States as the highest judicial entity in government. But first, it is necessary to define the term. According to Britannica, social contract in political philosophy, an actual or hypothetical compact or agreement between the ruled or between the ruled and their rulers, defining the rights and duties of each. In primeval times, according to theory, individuals were born into an anarchic state of nature, which was happy or unhappy, according to the particular version of the theory. They then, by exercising natural reason, formed a society and a government by means of a social contract. The first thing we should understand about social contracts is that they are only distantly related to private contracts between individuals. Our first clue in this Britannica definition is the word hypothetical. Then we were told that they arose from prior state of nature, which was happy or unhappy according to the particular version of the theory. Clearly, the political philosophers were guessing about this so-called state of nature. Then Britannica informs us that this is how governments were formed. Thomas Paine has a more realistic view that he expressed in The Rights of Man. It has been thought a considerable advance toward establishing the principles of freedom to say that government is a compact between those who govern and who are governed. But this cannot be true because it is putting the effect before the cause. For as man must have existed before governments existed, there necessarily was a time when governments did not exist. And consequently, there could be, there could originally exist no governors to form such a compact with. The fact, therefore, must be that the individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a compact with each other to produce a government. And this is the only mode in which governments have a right to arise, and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. Paine, furthermore, had a strong sense for how governments had arisen historically. In casting our eyes over the world, it is extremely easy to distinguish the governments which have arisen out of society or out of the social compact from those which have not. But to place this in a clearer view, a clearer light than what is uh, from those uh, to place this in a clearer light than what is a single glance may afford, it will be proper to take a review of the several sources from which governments have arisen and on which they have been founded. They may be all comprehended under three heads: first, superstition; secondly, power; thirdly, the common interest of society and the common rights of man. The first was government of priestcraft, the second of conquerors, and the third of reason. 
Rights of Man was published in 1791 and 1792 when there had been great optimism for electoral representative government and the positive potential of reason. The American Declaration of Independence, successful war of independence against the British, and the framing of the Constitution of the United States had created the, uh, the initial enthusiasm. Paine was countering Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, which Paine felt was unfair criticism. But both books preceded the reign of terror and the dictatorship of Napoleon. With more than two centuries in back of us, it is apparent that both authors saw some, but not all things clearly, and that the limits of reason ought to be understood. It... <clears throat> wasn't until the publication of Charles Mackey's memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions in the madness of crowds in 1841 that it was recognized that the madness of crowds was a strong countervailing force against the operation of government within the constraints of reason. Let's take a look at the history of social contract philosophy. The idea of social contract can probably be traced to the ancient Greece and particularly to Protagoras and Epicurus. In the English tradition, the Magna Carta is considered to be an early example of social contract. This is how Britannica describes it. Magna Carta, in English, Great Charter, is a charter of English liberties granted by King John on June 15, 1215, under threat of civil war and reissued with alterations in 1216, 1217, and 1225. By declaring the sovereign to be subject to the rule of law and documenting the liberties held by free men, the Magna Carta provided the foundation for individual rights in Anglo-American jurisprudence. Although the ordinary Englishman may have benefited indirectly from the Magna Carta, the parties to this social contract were the barons, the landed aristocracy, and the king. Magna Carta did establish the principle that the sovereign as well as sovereign subjects were equally subject to the same legitimate law. The modern form of social contract philosophy leads from Hugo Grotius, uh, who lived between 1583 and 1645, Thomas Hobbes, who lived between 1588 and 1679, and Samuel von Pufendorf, who lived between 1632 and 1694, through John Locke, 1632 to 1704, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, and Thomas Jefferson, 1743 to 1826. It was neither a straight path nor a safe path. Focus has changed from protecting the landed gentry from the king to protecting all the people from the sovereign, but implementation was still muddied as this criticism of Grotius demonstrates. Grotius insisted that a people may give their rights to a ruler, receiving a peaceful and stable society in return. But what are the limits placed on the ruler who has taken possession of these rights? To some readers, Grotius' willingness to allow agents to transfer their rights leaves him open to charges of befriending despots, provided that the initial transfer of rights was legitimate. Then once the ruler is in possession of rights, those living under him or her have no right to complain that certain forms of behavior are unjust, for they have no relevant rights at all. <clears throat> The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has this to say about Thomas Hobbes and social contract. Hobbes is famous for his early and elaborate development of what has come to be known as social contract theory, the method of justifying political principles or arrangements by appeal to the agreement that would be made among suitably situated rational, free, and equal persons. 
He is infamous for having used the social contract method to arrive at the astonishing conclusion that we ought to submit to the authority of an absolute, undivided, and unlimited sovereign power. While his methodological innovation had a profound constructive impact on subsequent work in political philosophy, his substantive conclusions have served mostly as a foil for the development of more palatable philosophical positions. The Yale Books blog offers this insight into Hobbes' view of mankind. <clears throat> Hobbes, like Machiavelli, had a low, low view of human beings. We are all basically selfish, driven by fear of death and the hope of personal gain, he believed. All of us seek power over others, whether we realize this or not. If you don't accept Hobbes' picture of humanity, why do you lock the door when you leave your house? Surely it's because you know that there are many people out there who would happily steal everything you own. But you might argue only some people are that selfish. Hobbes disagreed. He thought that at heart, we are... We all are, and that it is only the rule of law and the threat of punishment that keep us in check. The consequence of this, he argued, was that if society broke down and you had to live in what he called a state of nature without laws or anyone with the power to back them up, you, like everyone else, would steal and murder when necessary. At least you'd have to do that if you wanted to carry on living. In a world of scarce resources, particularly if you were struggling to find food and water to survive, it would actually be rational to kill other people before they killed you. In Hobbes' memorable description, life outside society would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Then how did some of these solitary, poor, nasty, brutish people miraculously conceive of the idea of government serving them? That must have been a remarkable clan campfire around which these despicable people convened. Locke's was a more realistic view, and one consistent with an understanding of human potential. American Battlefield Trust offers this comparison between the views of Hobbes and Locke on social contract. Hobbes and Locke, were e uh, Hobbes and Locke each stood on fundamentally opposing corners in their debate on what made the most effective form of government for society. Hobbes was a proponent of absolutism, a system which placed control of the state in the hands of a single individual, a monarch free from all forms of limitations or accountability. Locke, on the other hand, favored a more open approach to state building. Locke believed that a government's legitimacy came from the consent of the people they governed. Though their conclusions on what made an effective government wildly differed, their arguments had an enormous impact on later philosophies of the Enlightenment era including the Founding Fathers of the American Revolution. <clears throat> Britannica provides this description of Rousseau's perspective of the social contract. <clears throat> Rousseau held that in the state of nature, humans were solitary, but also happy, healthy, happy, good, and free. What Rousseau called nation uh, societies were formed when humans began to live together as families and neighbors. That development, however, gave rise to negative and destructive passions such as jealousy and pride, which in turn fostered social inequality and human vice. The introduction of private property marked a further step toward inequality, since it made law and government necessary as a means of protecting it. Rousseau lamented the fatal concept of property and the horrors that resulted from the departure from a condition in which the earth belonged to no one. Thus, Rousseau was the polar opposite of Hobbes, with his romanticization 
of humans in their original state. His attack on property also conflicted with Locke's comment in his second treatise of government. This makes humans willing to quit a condition which, however free, is full of fears and continual dangers. And it's not without reason that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite for the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name property. The Independent Review offers an insightful comment about the differences between Grotius and Pufendorf on the one hand and Locke on the other hand in their interpretation of the social contract idea. Locke's notion is more radical is the more radical viewpoint, and Pufendorf's and Grotius are more conservative. The Lockean contract is produced when the people contract among themselves to form a state. Grotius and Pufendorf, writing somewhat earlier in the 17th century, produced a variation on Hobbes' thinking. For them, the people enter into a contract with their rulers, with government, as though it were a separate entity. This was also an essential difference in the thinking of Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson was strongly influenced by Locke. Ultimately, it was his words in the Declaration of Independence that became the universal banner of freedom. And yet, perhaps unintentionally, Jefferson's words that began, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, were bypassed in favor of this preamble to the Constitution of 1787. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That had two negative effects. The first, it put distance between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of 1787. And second, it opened the door to the abuse of the Declaration based upon the nebulous concept of the general welfare. Once that door was left ajar, it was only a matter of time before those who wished to extend the power of the federal government over the people would turn the Declaration on its head. Finally, it is important to recognize that Jefferson, in addition to stating the ideas of freedom in ringing language, also stated the idea of social contract in a nearly perfect form. Let's look at a federation as a social contract. Once the principles of social contract are understood, it is necessary to understand how they are implemented in a special type of social contract, the federation agreement. Montesquieu had reservations about the application of the Republican concept on a large territorial scale. Montesquieu would have had would have had exposure to the Dutch Republic and the old Swiss Confederacy and might have compared these federations with France, the largest and most centralized of the European monarchies. Concerning the Dutch Republic, Wikipedia describes it as follows. The United Provinces of the Netherlands, officially the Republic of the Seven United and commonly referred to in his, historiography as the Dutch Republic, was a confederation that existed from 1579 until the Batavian Revolution in 1795. Wikipedia has this description of the old Swiss Confederacy. The old Swiss Confederacy or Swiss Confederacy was a loose confederation of independent small states, initially within the Holy Roman Empire. It is the precursor of the modern state of Switzerland. In creating both confederations under the Articles of Confederation, and the 1787 Constitution of the United States, 
The founders of the United States believed that by establishing clear-cut lines of concurrent sovereignty, which was Hamilton's term, and residual sovereignty, which was Madison's term, they could ignore Montesquieu's warning. Perhaps under a more appropriately written social contract, it is still possible to avoid the imperial form of government that currently plagues the United States. Let's look at the question of accountability. <clears throat> there appears to be little discussion of the issue of government accountability to the people under social contract. Perhaps it is assumed. In any case, a form of government that is otherwise perfectly formed as a Republican Federation soon becomes a mockery of the idea of government formed by the people without accountability. <clears throat> the current government of the United States is in every respect imperial with a non-accountable Federal Reserve System, secret security state departments such as the FBI, FBI, the CIA, and the NSA, and virtually every arm of the federal government weaponized beyond the effective control of the people. In addition, the federal judiciary has created what is called the Chevron deference that arose in the U.S. Supreme Court Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council in 1984. The effect of the court opinion was to assume that the federal bureaucracy's assertions against the citizen were true unless the citizen could prove otherwise. Instead of the citizen holding the government accountable, it became the government holding the citizen accountable. Let's talk about elimination of the 17th Amendment. 17th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States effectively destroys a social contract forming a federation in that the definition of a federation is an agreement among sovereign states for specified purposes. Until the 17th Amendment, the United States Senators acted as agents of the states who were parties to the contract, and the federal government was not a part of that contract, only an entity formed by it. Today, these senators are nothing more than representatives of the people with longer terms of office. So what's the answer to all of this? Well, one part of the answer is creation of a Supreme Court of the states. As with any other agreement, a federal social contract requires interpretation that can't be done by federal by a federal judiciary, which is not even a party to the contract. A federal judiciary has a stake in its own existence and expansion of power. It may safely be allowed to issue an opinion concerning the application of federal law to a particular case, but only the states can judge on issues of constitutionality. Therefore, it's obvious the highest judicial powers must be assigned to a Supreme Court comprised of the states. Oh, amen, because the Supreme Court clearly is not answerable to really anyone. Uh, in fact, uh, attempts to impeach Supreme Court judges, which, by the way, is the responsibility of uh, the legislative branch when they see uh, actions being taken that are unconstitutional on the part of the Supreme Court. Impeachment is what is called for. The House would uh, draw up articles of impeachment, uh, basically accusations, and then uh, those accusations would be held in a trial held in the Senate. And uh, if uh, two-thirds of the senators agree that those accusations are true, then the, the members of the Supreme Court under trial on trial would be removed from their office. But uh, we don't see any attempts to do that in, in our day. By the way, Phil, I, I love the fact that you walked us through the philosophy of the various uh, people involved in laying the foundation. And particularly, I find it fascinating the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau that rejects the whole idea of property. You know, he talks about the horrors that resulted from uh, the condition in which the earth belonged to no one and no one owned private property. 
And actually, that's the uh, philosophy of Karl Marx and the entire communist uh, movement today. Uh, in fact, you could say that's behind what, what is happening with the erosion of our property rights here in America. Things like Kilo v. New London, we could talk about as an example where, you know, the Supreme Court basically says, eh, you really don't own your property anymore. You rent it from the government. Hey, you can call it the property tax, but it's really you're just renting from the government because any day they desire to take your property from you, they can come along for any reason or no reason at all and simply take your property from you and appropriate it to somebody else or to themselves. Uh, you know, the government's always building new parks and, uh, and acquiring new land by eminent domain, all of that sort of thing. So the issue of property is essential. And in fact, uh, the very purpose for which government is formed, according to our founders, according to John Locke and, and uh, uh, Montesquieu and, and uh, Blackstone, the, the preeminent thinkers in the minds of our founders, the very purpose of government is to protect your God-given right to life, to liberty, and to property. In fact, the Declaration of Independence, they expanded that phrase property to what we're, what we see in the text as, uh, the, you know, the pursuit of happiness. But actually, Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration before the, the Committee of Five got together and, and, and changed some wording, the first draft Jefferson had was life, liberty, and property, following John Locke in, in uh, lockstep, you might say, pun intended. But uh, it was changed to broaden it because for many people, the concept of property would mean, you know, a, a piece of land, a piece of real estate, uh, not uh, intellectual property, such as uh, you made an invention and so you should have a right to the uh, – uh, profits from that invention, at least for a certain period of time, which is why we have a patent office and things like that. So they they wanted the expanded idea of the pursuit of happiness, but it's all uh, uh, coalesced in that idea that you have a God-given right to property ownership. In fact, that idea of property ownership is not uh, uh, unique to John Locke and, uh, uh, you know, Pufendorf Vital and, and the other writers as well as Blackstone and Montesquieu. All of those writers actually got that idea of property rights directly from Scripture. That's right, from Scripture, particularly the law of God that crafted and created the Hebrew Republic. That is before the monarchy of King Saul, King David, and so on and so forth. But before the monarchy, there was a Hebrew Republic, a very decentralized form of government of 12 individual tribes. And those tribes each had their own territory, and they would come together in times of crisis, at times of war. Uh, but there was a very decentralized form of government. There was no uh, there was no capital. There was no president. There was no uh, national legislature. Each state, each tribe, excuse me, had had their own uh, uh, government that was responsible for taking care of the, the judicial and legislative needs within their own territory. That is their own tribe. And only uh, when it was a time of war would the tribes come together and participate in an army of the United Tribes of Israel to combat the Philistines or whoever. But one of the interesting laws that uh, God gave at Mount Sinai for the Hebrew Republic is in Leviticus, 20, Leviticus 25, where God is the one who says he gave the land to the families of these specific tribes. So each tribe, each tribe was divided up in terms of land and each family within the, the, the tribe was given a plot of land, the family farm. And they owned this family farm in perpetuity. That is, it could never be taken away from their family. Study Leviticus 25 very carefully. If they fell into poverty, they could rent their farm for up to 49 years. 
But in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, that property would return to the family to whom God originally gave the property. And this idea is actually preserved in English common law and American common law. It's known as allodial title. That phrase allodial is a Greek phrase, but from God. That is, if I own property, I've received it from God, who is the owner of everything. He owns all the property in the universe and all the property on earth. And therefore, if I if I've obtained property, I've gotten it from God and God has given it to me, to my family. And it should not, not be taken from my family by any entity, including civil government. So civil government shouldn't be able to come and say, well, eminent domain, we need to, you know, put up a school. We need to put up a firehouse. We need to put up whatever. Or we need to do like a city of New London want to do. We need to give Pfizer, that big pharma drug company that's billions and billions of dollars. We need to give them a tax break here in New London. And we want to attract that. We want to eliminate all these private property owners. And we want to give it to this corporation. And that's where that case uh, went, went before the Supreme Court. And I believe they ruled the wrong way. But in God's law, Leviticus 25, that could never happen. The government couldn't even tax your property because to tax your property would be to say, if you don't pay the tax, the government comes and takes your property. And and that's, you know, this happens all over America today, every day. Government stealing people's property for unpaid property taxes, all against God's law. But I find it fascinating that Rousseau, his philosophy has gone in the direction of communism, which is committed, as Karl Marx states in his Communist Manifesto, committed to the abolition of private property. So that's where Rousseau heads in his philosophy in contrast to those who influenced our founders who believe that the whole purpose of government was to protect your God-given rights, uh, one of the most important of which God-given rights is your right to property ownership. We could talk about many ways in which that property ownership is under attack uh, today. But John Locke made an enormous contribution to our founders, uh, and he contributed this idea. Government is established by a covenant or a contract of the people. And he actually refers to the original image of that contract or that covenant, and, and quoting him, that paction, that is that covenant, which God made with Noah after the deluge. So in, in Genesis 9, 6, uh, the whole idea where God said to Noah and his family, whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So there's the death penalty related to being human beings made in the image of God. There, Locke, I believe correctly argues, was the beginning of human civil government ordained by God. And Locke also added this idea that God has ordained the law of nature to which all human law must be subordinate. Think of that. All human law must be subordinate to God's law, which he styled the law of nature. And our founders believe this very clearly. They stated it right there in the Declaration of Independence. Their entire basis for forming this new government, their entire reason for being able to separate from King George III's government was the laws of nature and nature's God, taken uh, directly here from uh, John Locke in his phrase, as well as uh, William Blackstone, who used uh, a similar phrase. The third idea that Locke contributed to our founders was that the law of nature, our God-given rights, chiefly are these, life, liberty, and property. And uh, actually, Locke does, in his writing, expand the idea of property. And uh, you quoted it there, Phil, that, that whole idea that uh, all of your rights could be assumed to be your property. You have property in your right to liberty. You have property in uh, your right to life and so on. And so it's very important to understand 
the people our founders were reading because they read John Locke, they read Sir William Blackstone, they read uh, Charles Barron Montesquieu, uh, and they understood these and they shaped their philosophy. In fact, of all the quotations beyond the Bible, which, by the way, when you look at the founding uh, founders and what they quoted as authoritative, the first and most important source, the largest percentage of their quotations come from the Bible. These are biblically literate men who believe the word of God to be the law of the universe. So they quoted the Bible first and foremost, and then next they quoted uh, Baron Charles Montesquieu and William Blackstone and John Locke. These were the significant thinkers that shaped uh, their understanding of what the purpose of government is. And I would argue that uh, why we are in the mess we are in today, and such a deep mess, we'll talk about some of the illustrations of that in a moment here, but the reason we're in such a mess is that Americans today don't hold that worldview of law and government that our founders held, that there is a creator God, that our rights come from him, that the only purpose of human civil government is to protect our God-given rights, not to redistribute our wealth, not to do wicked things like the governor of Maryland here has recently written an edict. That is, he's bypassed the legislature and he's claimed that the citizens of Maryland, he's going to force uh, you might almost say basically at gunpoint, to fund the mutilation of children. That's right. The mutilation of children will be funded from henceforth by the taxpayers of Maryland, according to the tyrant, uh, our current wicked uh, governor Moore in, in Maryland. That He has no right or authority to do this. And it is a wicked thing uh, that he's doing. But many people go along with it because, well, you know, uh, government services, that's what it's all about. No, it's not about government services. It's about government serving the people by protecting and defending their God-given rights, not giving them welfare checks and food stamps and not giving them all kinds of handouts and goodies. No, no. The purpose of government is to protect their God-given right to life, to liberty, to property. And so those are the things that government should be focused on. But many, many Americans, I think, have drifted in the direction of Jean-Jacques Rousseau rather than the direction of John Locke. And they have uh, stepped away from John Locke because you have to realize that if you believe that government's job is only protect God-given rights, that means you believe in a limited government, that you believe government doesn't interfere in most of the daily functions of your life and your neighbor's life. And, and government doesn't get involved in all kinds of things that, that uh, you know, citizens might want. You know, you, you might want a fire company that would uh, protect your house when, when a fire breaks out. But you could do that privately, as all the first fire companies in America, Benjamin Franklin forming the first one, were a volunteer. That is, you volunteered to pay to have your house protected by the fire company. <laughs> there was nothing with the government involved in that at all. Uh, and so many of the functions that we today assume, oh, of course, this is the job of government to do you know, a long list of things. Our founders said, no, no, that's not the job of government. That's the job of private individuals. That's the private private associations can form to do those things. Uh, like, you know, Ben Franklin formed the association uh, to, to set up a fire station around the city of Philadelphia. And he also formed a, a library, but you had to subscribe to the libraries. And all these sorts of things could be done privately rather than saying, no, no, we want these services and we don't want private involvement. We want to force by taxes 
everyone to have to pay for these services, whether they want the service or not. You might not want the fire service. You might say, ah, I'm going to defend my own property from fire. And I don't need to pay the fire. Or I, I, library, you know, I, I want to buy my own books. I don't want to pay for the public library. Uh, and so that's the problem with the system most people have accepted today, the Jean-Jacques Rousseau idea that uh, we want all these services from our government. And so we're going to we're going to force with the power of taxation, which really is the power to destroy. The Supreme Court actually admitted that, that in one significant case that the power to tax is the power to destroy. So we're going to give the government this power to destroy everyone in society in order for them to take money from everyone. And usually it's more going to be taken from the rich than the poor. And some people, they won't take any money from at all. So there's some people that don't contribute anything, but they still get the benefits, right? Is that fair? Is that just? Of course not. But that whole idea that we want government services rather than we want the government to leave us alone, except to, to protect and defend our God-given rights is the slippery slope to tyranny uh, that we have been traveling down uh, for far too many years already. And unless this is stopped, unless we turn back, well, we're going to wind up with a kind of a communist regime or socialist regime that was the vision of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, rather than the freedom and liberty of our founders that uh, was the vision of uh, John Locke. Phil, what are your thoughts? I'd just like to add uh, that uh, Thomas Aquinas, and I think this was about the 13th century or so, in his treatise of law, identified a, a superstructure of law. At the top was the eternal law of God. Subordinated to that were two separate parts, the first, scripture, and the second, the natural law. And uh, human law was subordinated to both of those, which I find, find to be a very interesting thing. So in other words, it doesn't have to be specifically in, in uh, uh, scripture, but if we realize that that there is something called a natural law, which is is basically universally recognized. Thou shalt not murder, for example. Uh, then it it makes sense that human laws should be subordinated to both. And you know, our founders were brilliant in understanding it. Basically, they got this from scripture. It wasn't there in their ideas, uh, but that all men are created equal. That therefore we're all equal before the law. Now, not you need to understand because people today are starting to use the word equity, which is not equality. It's a very different idea. Uh, and uh, equity focuses on equality of outcomes. You know, everybody gets the same income. Everybody drives the same car. Everybody wears the same, all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. That's not at all what our founder said. You have equal opportunity. Doesn't mean you're all going to have the same level of income or, or those things, but there's freedom for you to use the God-given gifts you had in, in the ways you choose to pursue it. You might make some terrible mistakes and wind up poor. You might, uh, you know, have some good happenstances take place and you might wind up very wealthy. So it's not the outcome, but all are equal before the law. And we see that this is being rejected today. Just think of the two-tiered justice system we have witnessed uh, this past, well, a little over a week now with uh, Joe Biden's criminal crime family and, and his son, Hunter Biden, getting away with crimes that are just absolutely uh, uh, you know, beyond belief in terms of accepting bribes on behalf of his father to have his father, who was the vice president at the time, do certain things for uh, uh, political ends desired by other countries. This is treason. It is treason. And yet there's not even a slap on the hand. I think there's a little, you know, 
tap on the shoulder said, oh, you're, you're fine. Go ahead, Hunter. Continue in your criminal ways. Continue taking bribes from all these people. And we don't know actually the extent of it. We know that there's multiple millions of dollars that have been – I think he was threatening the, the fella in, in China. I forget the exact uh, company. But he was threatening with, you know, you don't send me $5 million right now. Uh, then you're, you're going to lose the power and influence that you want with my father. My father's sitting right here in the room with me right now. Can hear that. And we have whistleblower testimony. This is exactly what was on that laptop that uh, the FBI hid and pretended was Russian disinformation, complete lies in order to see that the American people didn't know the truth about the, the, the corrupt uh, Biden crime family. So what we see right, right now is a two-tiered system of justice. They're going after Trump for some paperwork thing, wanting to put him in prison for something that's a minor thing. That, and Joe Biden's done far worse along that same lines in terms of holding papers that, you know, supposed not have here and there. Anyway, they're trying to a two tiered system. Look how Trump is being treated and then contrast that with how Hunter Biden and Joe Biden are being treated. We have a two tiered system of justice. And that's what happens when you follow the Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, philosophy of government. The people in power, they get a different standard of justice than anybody else. And that's not justice at all. Yeah, I have a question about this. <clears throat> why should the Department of Justice, an appointed office of the president, why should the Department of Justice have the arbitrary power to determine who should be prosecuted? Does that make any sense at all? I mean, one of the things we, we understand, certainly with a couple hundred years of experience in this republic behind us is that <clears throat> naturally the president of the United States also becomes the head of the political party that got him there. So we know that the, the office is political. And <clears throat> I have reservations elsewhere about uh, the ability to, to appoint all of these political positions, but <clears throat> it is, it is the, within the power of the, the president to appoint his or her uh, attorney general. Well, hello. Uh, don't, don't they have a, a, an interest in this? Isn't there a conflict of interest in, involved in this? I mean, to me, it's, it's absolutely crazy. It seems to me that this is another example of power that uh, uh, is at absolutely the wrong level. I don't know exactly where that power should be, but I know that it would be preferable to put it into the hands of the, uh, uh, as I call it, the Supreme Court of mm -hmm. States. And you're right, because this really is a question of accountability. How can we, the people, hold the Department of Justice? And I think today you might accurately call it the Department of Injustice. <laughs> They're not interested in justice at all. Uh, you know, the Department of Injustice, how do, you, how do we hold them accountable? They're supposed to be serving we, the people. Instead, they appear to be serving the regime and the Biden crime family being at the top of the pyramid currently of, of that regime and, and so on. So how is it that we hold them accountable? And, and you're absolutely right. The way it is structured currently, we cannot hold these criminals accountable. And also, can we hold the FBI accountable? Huh. The crimes that they have committed very clearly just in the past four years. Or how about the uh, the CIA or the NSA and the crimes been committed there? And how about, you know, the IRS? Think of, uh, you know, lack of accountability. They're not even accountable to Congress. They just do whatever they please. And so we've got a government that uh, is really, really running on its own agenda and its own 
self-proclaimed authority. There's no constitutional authority for what they're doing, but they're just saying, hey, we're the government. We're going to do what we please. And if you object or, uh, you know, we're heading in the direction of the Jean-Jacques Rousseau regime that uh, you object, uh, then you wind up in jail. You wind up in the gulag for criticizing the government and therefore the government serving itself rather than the government serving we the people by protecting our God-given rights. You know, you rightly tied together the uh, the investigations of uh, President Trump and and the current situation with the Biden, as you call, call it, the Biden crime family. I have no objection to that term. Uh, but it goes back even further. Um, this is uh, 2016, I believe. The director of the FBI, James Comey, made a public statement on July 6th of that year, identifying all of the uh, violations of federal crime um, by uh, of federal law, I should say, by uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. And at the end of that, he said, but nobody, no prosecutor in his right mind, effectively, uh, would attempt to, to prosecute her. Didn't give a reason, just claimed, just made this bold statement. And uh, thank you. No further questions. Goodbye. Hello. I mean, all three of these these situations, the uh, um, Hillary Clinton's putting all of this this top secret stuff on her personal server at home, uh, the the so-called Russian disinformation hoax and the Biden crime uh, uh, incidents. They're all related in the same way. And that is that the there is a total failure on the the part of the FBI to uh, um, even even look at this uh, in any way objectively. All they're doing is they are an arm of the the political parties. Basically, they've t- captured the top positions. They they take their orders from the the top politicians. This is not government by the people for the people. You know, Comey said no, no prosecutor in his right mind. Perhaps he was, and again, we have to read into his thinking here. Perhaps he was referring to the tendency of those who go against the Clintons to wind up being what we call Arkansided. You heard of that? You know, <laughs> wind up dead. It's oh, it's a suicide. Of course, the guy shot himself in the back of the head. Now, how did you shoot? How did the the, the fellow that was uh, very close to Hillary? How did he shoot himself in the back of the head? Then drag himself across the park because the mud on his shoes indicated the park he was in, get himself in a vehicle and, and transport himself to another place where his body was found. It's like, whoa, this is just, just too much, you know? So, well, there we don't have the FBI investigating anything at all. And I think Trump is accurate at describing the fact that there is a deep state within our federal government. That is, there's powers that doesn't matter who becomes president, because obviously when, when Trump became president, they were operating against him continuously. The FBI was weaponized against Trump and the DOJ. So he was he was fighting people within his own administration. Uh, he tried to fire some and they was accused of anyway, all kinds of problems because there is a, uh, a cabal of people who've locked the powers of, of federal government together and conspired to control no matter who's president for their own nefarious uh, purposes and, and goals that really have nothing to do with our life, our liberty, or, or our property. You know, so John Brennan and, and uh, you know, you mentioned Comey. There's a long list of these, of oh, the head of the NSA for a while, Clapper, a long list of these criminals who are part of this power structure 
that instead of doing what our founders said the purpose of government was, are doing something that benefits them and also benefits an agenda that I don't think at all reflects our constitutional republic. I think it's the opposite of a constitutional republic. In fact, I would say it's moving us down the direction of socialist or ultimately communist dictatorship. You know, the amazing thing about that so-called victim of, of suicide is that, um, you know, in walking from his car uh, and apparently, um, you know, having uh, walked considerably during the day, somehow he managed to get to that park bench with a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Never scuffed. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah. All those sort of miracles happen all the time, right? <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. But, uh, I appreciated yeah. your, your comments that one of the steps we took away from our constitutional republic was, was the 17th Amendment. And I agree 100 percent that that year 1913 was a very disastrous year, the year that the Federal Reserve was brought into existence by unconstitutional legislation, by the way. And the year the 17th Amendment was supposedly ratified. We have grave doubts about the actual ratification of the 17th Amendment, just as we do have evidence against the ratification of the 16th Amendment. But because the 17th Amendment eliminated the check that the states had against the federal government passing any legislation, and it would be good to remind ourselves that the design was that the state uh, uh, senators were appointed by the state legislature. So the state of Pennsylvania would choose it's two senators, and those two senators went to Washington to serve the state of Pennsylvania and the interests of the state of Pennsylvania, and they would be in communication with the legislature of the state of Pennsylvania as to what those interests were. And so if there was a bill coming through the Senate uh, that the, the state legislatures of Pennsylvania wanted their senator to vote against, they would instruct their senator how to vote. And if their senator refused to vote the way the legislature of the state wanted him to vote, they would then fire him and replace him with someone else. In fact, we have a, a, a notable example. I think it was John Quincy Adams at the time when he was a senator for Massachusetts, and he knew because he'd been instructed by the state legislature of Massachusetts how they wanted him to vote as a senator on a particular piece of legislation, and he in good conscience could not vote that way. What John Quincy Adams did was resign. And this, you know, you study the history of this. This took place because there were honest senators who knew their job in the Senate was to represent their legislature. Therefore, the states had a control, had a check on the federal government to stop anything they did not want the federal government uh, from doing. Uh, we've lost that check as uh, the 17th Amendment, which is why you're absolutely right. We need to eliminate the 17th Amendment altogether. Well, um, this is one of the reasons why I think we're doing this show, which is to to talk about the possibilities under a, a totally new constitution where there are no constraints from the past and so forth. And I'd like to just read something out of the current constitution. Um, Article 5, uh, at, which is about amendments, and its concluding statement is that no state without its consent shall be deprived of equal suffrage in the Senate. Now, that's almost an innocuous statement, but when we think of the implications of this, what is Article 5 saying? It's basically saying you can change anything in the Constitution except that. You can't do that. And what I'm thinking is 
no, I'm not interested in a 21st Amendment that will repeal the 17th Amendment. No, no. Let's put it into an Article 5 kind of an idea, which would state that, you know, you, you can't have um, direct uh, election of senators. That that just uh, un, uh, that just destroys the entire Constitution. In a sense, you're saying then the, a proposed new Constitution would include a statement that uh, this element of our Constitution cannot be amended. It can never be changed. That's and right. I agree with you. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. And that would. And we may have to expand uh, on that a little bit, but basically, hey, you mess with these <laughs> things, hey, you, basically we're going back to the Declaration of Independence. You want you want to destroy the Constitution? Fine, you know that's your choice. That's what the Declaration of Independence tells us. But on the other hand, you know if you don't want to do that, then that option is mm, not on the table. And I'm just speculating as to what could be included in, in a new Constitution, but perhaps you could have a breakup clause that says. If a majority of the states want something in this example, like the 17th Amendment, then those states need to go form their own country. We just need to, you know, agree yeah. to separate, agree to an amicable divorce, and let's not be together because this is so essential. We cannot allow this to be amended. And I think there's more than just this 17th Amendment issue that should be on that list of things that say this is off limits. It cannot be amended. And if they want to amend this, well, then that's the breakup of the republic. That, that's just the end of it. Right, right, right. That's that's the basic idea. And incidentally, that is the subject of uh, yes. uh, the next session, <laughs> which is about uh, what states should be admitted, could be admitted to um, a, a new federation and um, how those states might secede. In other words, basically, um, complete their obligations under the social contract and remove themselves from the contract, considering it uh, executed. Yeah. That is a totally legitimate idea under the common law. And currently, our, our current constitution says absolutely nothing about states leaving the union. It has a whole lot to say about how a territory can become a uh, you know, a state and, and the process is all laid out and, and Congress has to approve the constitution of the new state. Anyway, a lot of details about how a new state, but absolutely nothing, which means to me, the 10th Amendment applies because the 10th Amendment says if if it's not stated in the constitution, it's a power that belongs to the states or to the people, that the people have that, that power to secede. But obviously, that was not clearly enough stated that the 16th president, uh, you know, chose to go to war and to kill well, over 600,000 people in his theory of the Constitution that says you join this union. The only way you're leaving this union is in a body bag. Well, this is We the People. The Constitution Matters coming to you over the airways of WFYL, inviting you to join us next Friday for our continuing discussion of these ideas. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas, want to share with them, use my email, dwhitney at theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. Join us next Friday morning. 8 a.m. at We the People, the Constitution Matters. <laughs>